like to invite you to turn your Bibles now to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 13. We finished the book of Acts for about a year in the book, and we are going to be looking at a few topics in between the time before we go into another book. But here we look into the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. The scriptures read as such. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your precious word. We pray, God, that you would teach us and open the eyes of our heart once again, that we might see and understand great things from thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible is supremely a book about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament records the preparation for his coming. The Gospels present him as God in human flesh who's come into the world to save sinners. In the book of Acts, the message of salvation in Christ begins to spread throughout the whole world from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. And the epistles detail the theology of Christ's work, detail the theology of who he is in, the bo- in his body, in the church. Finally, Revelation presents Christ on the throne, reigning as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The scriptures testify of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 24:27 tells us, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And in John 5:39, Jesus said of the scriptures, "It is these that bear witness of me." Jesus is the central figure in the scriptures. He is the one who is preeminent. That is what Colossians 1 tells us in verse 15 and following, that he is the image or the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the exact representation of him. 
For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in all things him hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven." Unquote. In much the same way, the book of Hebrews addresses that Jesus is superior to everything and anything we could even have ever known here on this earth. The author of Hebrews is primarily addressing Jews and their relationship to the Old Testament rituals because some of the Jews had become believers. Some of them were not. And those that were not, some were unbelievers who were intellectually unconvinced. Some were intellectually convinced. Those unbelievers who were attracted to the gospel and and the person of Christ, well, many of them had not come to a saving knowledge of him. But there were a good number of Jews that the author addresses as well who were young, who were immature Jews. They had come to salvation, but they were afraid of the persecution that would follow. They were afraid of what other Jews would think of them. They were tempted to hold on to the Old Testament rituals. They were tempted to hold on to the traditions of Judaism and to go along with the crowd. They were afraid of the persecution or the ostracism that they might face. And that is what the Hebrew, what the author of Hebrews writes here to say that Jesus is superior to all. So leave those things behind. Now I know many of you, many of you come from an ethnic background, and many of you may have some family religious traditions or family religious beliefs. Some have, uh, when it comes to various things, you have some import from family members. Maybe some of your family members come from an ancestral worship background or a Buddhist background or believe in certain things. When it comes to funerals that happen, you know, they'll talk about, well, maybe you can put some money in their mouth to pay for the toll as they enter into the next life. Or maybe one of your weddings. I have a friend who had a wedding. And how do you determine the wedding date? Well, you go and look at the farmer's almanac to determine which is the lucky date to get married. Or maybe some of you have had to buy a house. You had to buy a house, and your relatives say, no, don't buy a house at the end of the street. Why? Because all those evil spirits who come down will go right into your house, and they'll tell you that you shouldn't do these superstitious things, and sometimes when you go into certain homes, you'll see, oh, wow, there is a mirror above the door. What is that mirror for? Well, some have the superstitious belief that, well, after the wicked spirits come down the street and look at your house, they'll see themselves and scare themselves away. Some have certain prices that they price their house right down. I remember seeing a house right there that's priced at $888,000. Why? Because it sounds so much like being wealthy or prosperity. And some have 
various things, whether it comes to New Year's Day. You shouldn't wash your hair. Why? Because you might wash all that good luck out. Or maybe when you have a baby, or maybe when you have certain things like your birthday, there are certain superstitions that they have, or you go and eat a meal at somebody's grave because you're going to eat a meal with them. All of these things, and they put a bowl of food right there. The only people that it feeds are the things that feeds the rats. The people in the cemetery don't like that. Well, in the same way, these particularly young Jewish believers whom the book of Hebrews was written to, many of them at least, who were believers, were so tempted to go back to their old religious traditions. They were so tempted to go back to their old ways in order that they might not be persecuted, that they might not be ostracized by the other Jews. But Hebrews, the author here in chapter 6, tells them to go on to perfection. And it basically says Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the Aaronic priesthood. Jesus is superior to the law. Jesus is better than anything you will ever find in Judaism. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Jesus is preeminent than any of those things. And the message was turn to Christ and worship Christ. Don't let your heart, don't let your heart be swayed. And to those who didn't believe, it was to turn to Christ to receive him. So it's important to understand where the author's coming from and how we've come to chapter 13. And it's important if you ever study the book of Hebrews to have some understanding of the book of Leviticus. All of those sacrifices and the sacrificial system, they have some import in your understanding of the book of Hebrews because Jesus is reflected in the sacrificial system that they had in the book of Leviticus. So the first portion of the book of Hebrews goes through the superiority of Jesus, that Jesus is preeminent, that he is superior to everything. It is full of theological, and good, solid doctrine. And now we come to a section in which, practically speaking, how that works out in someone's life. How does it look in someone's life who places Jesus first? And frankly, that's how many of the books of the New Testament are written. They have a section in which they begin with doctrine, and then they have a section in which they begin with practice, how it fleshes out practically. That's how the book of Colossians is. That's how the book of Philippians is, or the book of Ephesians, the book of Romans. All of them begin with doctrine and theology, and then comes the behavior that comes because of right thinking. Orthodoxy precedes orthopraxy. In chapter 12, there are general exhortations for Christians to run the race of faith because of those who have come before us, the great hall of faith in chapter 11. Now we come to chapter 13, in which there are a series of practical exhortations in light of the fact that Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is superior to everything. And in the life of someone who places Christ first, who recognizes that Jesus is first in their life, has an outworking of practical things in which the author encourages them to do. And the first is that they are to love other Christians. They love other Christians. Those who have Christ in their life love other Christians. Verse 1, let love of the brethren continue. The overarching characteristic of a Christian is love. Love for God and love for others. 
particularly for God's people. There are three important reminders among many in which it is basic to this idea of loving other Christians. The first is that we are commanded, we are commanded to love other Christians. It is not optional. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. In other words, if there's another Christian that you do not love, it is sinful. You are commanded to love other Christians. Secondly, the way that we are to love other Christians is genuinely and with fervency. Genuinely and with fervency. 1 Peter 1.22 tells us, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. When you love other Christians, we realize that some Christians can be difficult. I can be difficult. You can be difficult at times because of sin in our life. Yet our love is to be genuine, not shallow, not fake. It is to be genuine and with fervency. Thirdly, not only are we commanded to love, we're to genuinely love, but thirdly, love for other Christians is characteristic of a true Christian, of a genuine Christian. Some people ask, well, how do I know if I am saved? How do I know if I'm a Christian? Well, one indicator is plainly spelled out in 1 John 3.14. 1 John 3.14, it says, we know We know, it's not we guess, we think, it is we know that we have passed out of death into life. There's only two categories, death, life. We know that we have passed out of death into life because what? We love the brethren. We love the brethren. We know that we have passed out of death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love person doesn't love their brethren, abides in death, abides in death. So the three things are that we are commanded to love, we are to fervently love, and it is characteristic of a true Christian that they love other believers. And the question for us is, is that our heart? Do we genuinely love other believers? Do we long to be with other Christians? No matter where we are, and we're not just talking about people that we know, But the fact of the matter is there are people who are saved around the world that are genuine believers. And to me, what a joy it is when I've gone to other countries, other cities, other towns, when I'm traveling on vacation, and I meet another Christian. There is a kindred spirit because they also are a child of God. And it is a wonderful time of fellowship because we can talk about the things of the Lord. We can talk about the things that God cares about. It is a good, good fellowship. Do you long to be with other Christians? Do you love other Christians? Secondly, not only are we to be people who display love towards other Christians, we are to show hospitality to strangers, to show hospitality to strangers. Verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now here the word stranger can refer to a believer, it can refer to an unbeliever, it it is a generic word, but it refers to somebody that we personally don't know. 
And in biblical times, housing options for people, especially Christians, were especially limited. Housing options, period, was limited. There was no, you know, Airbnb. There was no, you know, hotel chain. There were just these local inns, and the local inns had a bad reputation. They were expensive. They were expensive, and they were filled with people who were rather unsurly and could be dangerous, so it was especially helpful for people who were Christians to be able to find a place to stay if they were traveling through town. And oftentimes, believers would open up their doors to show hospitality to a traveling Christian. And it was especially, especially honorable to show uh, hospitality towards people who were evangelists, Christian uh, 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 missionaries, etc. And can you imagine that today that Christians offering other Christians a place to stay for a night or two for free would be, wow, what a privilege it would be to be able to open your doors. And many times, however, I think that the paralyzing fear of opening your home up to a stranger or somebody that you've never met is such that it just prohibits sometimes. Our, our own fear prohibits us from, or I shouldn't say prohibit, but causes us not to be as hospitable as we could be. The founder of the Navigators, Dawson Trotman, for example, he used his home. He used his home especially to win military people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And after several years of opening his home to sailors who would come through, he could say that sailors from every single state in the United States of America had come and became Christians in his living room. Alexander Strzok writes about Jim Peterson in his book Evangelism as a Lifestyle, and he tells about a Brazilian man. And this Brazilian man, his name was Mario, and he had begun a Bible study four years ago with this young man. And Mar- Mar- Mario was this uh, Marxist intellectual who was a political activist, and not one that you would call, let's say, uh, a friendly candidate towards Christianity. But it was several years later he, le- he came to Christ. And after he'd come to Christ, a few years later, Mario asked Jim, who was the host, he asked him if he knew really what had made him come to Christ, what sort of began to change his thinking. And Jim thought, well, maybe it's because of the many hours of the hospitality that he, or the many hours of intellectual discussion that he had in the scriptures. But Mario said, quote, remember the first time I stopped by your house? We were on our way someplace together, and I had a bowl of soup with you and your family. As I sat there observing you, your wife, your children, and how you related to each other, I asked myself, when will I have a relationship like this with my fiancé? When I realized the answer was never, I concluded I had to become a Christian for the sake of my own survival, unquote. You know, showing love to unbelievers is a tremendous testimony. As God opens their eyes, the eyes of their heart, to see how Christ shines through your family, how Christ shines through your own marriage and through your relationship and how you relate to others in your family. Wonderful testimony. You don't have to be a pastor or have years of training in Bible school when you can use your home or invite somebody out and serving others. 
You open the doors of your home, and God will bring people. And in so doing, the Scripture said, say, some have entertained angels unaware. Some have entertained angels unaware. I used to think about this a lot, especially you ever think about the fact that somebody that you might greet during welcome time might be an angel that might visit, might be sitting right beside you to see how friendly is this person. Maybe you've had someone that you've met before and you've only met them once, but for some reason they stand out in your mind. And God has a purpose by which he sends angels to minister to various people. God has his purposes. God has his messengers. Related to hospitality, Helga Henry, who is the wife of a theologian whose name was Carl F. Henry, reminds us that Christian hospitality is not a matter of choice. It is not a matter of money. It is not a matter of age, social standing, sex, or personality. Christian hospitality is a matter of obedience to God. It is a matter of obedience to God. So one who places Christ first in their life is one who ought to display love or does display love for other Christians and ought to show hospitality. Thirdly, they are to remember, we are to remember those who are persecuted. We are to remember those who are persecuted, persecuted Christians. Verse 3. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And according to Open Doors USA, every single month, 322 Christians on average are killed for their faith. That's about 10 per day for naming the name of Christ each month. 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed. Each month, 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians. Christian persecution is on the uptick, from verbal harassments to hostility to torture to confinement to being dragged into slavery to severe punishment, discrimination. According to Pew Research Center, over 75% of the world's population lives in areas with severe religious restrictions in general. And many of these people are Christians. Speaking of many who by faith have walked with God in the book of Hebrews in the previous chapter, in chapter 11, verse 35, it tells us that there were women who received back their dead by resurrection and others who were tortured. Others who were walking the walk of faith, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection, it says. Others who experienced mockings, scourgings, also chains and imprisonments. 1137, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute. They were afflicted. They were ill-treated. They were wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Now, as much as we avoid persecution, there are at least four blessings, four blessings and benefits of persecution. Four blessings and benefits of persecution, according to the Bible. 
Matthew 5 tells us that persecution is a blessing. It is a blessing in a way. In verse 10 through 12 of Matthew 5, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It is a blessing as the reward in heaven will be great. The greatness for those who are persecuted because of the Lord Jesus. Secondly, persecution advances the gospel. As much as those who are enemies of Christ desire to shut down the Lord Jesus and Christianity, persecution advances the gospel. Even as Philippians 1.12, when Paul was imprisoned, he writes, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. We see that same thing happen in those Christian or those countries which are communists, and they do not allow the church is growing and the purity of the church is preserved. Thirdly, persecution produces perseverance. It produces proven character and hope. In Romans 5, 3 and 4. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. Persecution produces perseverance, character, and hope. Fourthly, persecution unites the body of Christ. Just as we are to remember those who are persecuted, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Although persecution brings about great difficulty and sorrow, God uses it in redemptive ways. He blesses those who are persecuted with great reward. He advances the gospel. It produces perseverance and character and hope. It unites the body. We are to remember those who are persecuted, as verse 3 tells us. Back in 1987, about 30 years ago, I was serving with Overseas Mission Fellowship in Hong Kong. I'd gone by myself to serve with that organization for about half a summer. And near the end, I requested to take a trip into China to see the underground church. I really wanted to know and see the persecuted church. And they set me up with some Christians on the other side of the border, and it was a rather surreal uh, day, evening. They had prepped me on what to do, what to say, as I crossed over the border and brought in materials for the underground church on the other side. And all went smoothly. There was a password I would have. I would say this password to a stranger who would come up. They would say the corresponding word. They would take my bags and materials, and they whisked me off in this white van, the white unmarked van. And for the day, they took me to visit three underground churches. And it was a very humbling, humbling privilege to meet these faithful believers to meet these faithful leaders, to hear their testimony of how they had to hide or how they were persecuted for their faith or beaten. But it was the very last, it was the very last pastor of an underground church that said just four words to me that over the past 30 years, 
I often think of and I will never forget. He didn't ask for prayers. He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for an alleviation of his suffering. He simply said, don't forget about us. Don't forget about us. And those words have replayed in my mind as I think of how he had suffered so much for the sake of the gospel and how he was continuing to follow Christ. Don't forget about us. In a question and answer interview in Christianity Today, former Congressman Frank Wolf, who was a committed Christian from Virginia, he had been an outspoken advocate of international human rights for over 30 years. And he was visiting hotspots in the world that were related to persecution and human rights. And he was asked, if America, particularly American churches, were failing the oppressed people of the world, this is what he said. He said, I meet many people from around the world who are baffled and concerned that the West doesn't seem to be that interested in their plight. Half the Christian community in Iraq is now living in ghettos in Damascus, Lebanon, and Jordan. I was in Egypt last month. The United States had given the Egyptian government over $50 billion since the late 1970s, and yet Christians have been persecuted during that time. If you're a Christian in Egypt, you can't get a government job. You can't be in the military. They wonder why the church in the West hasn't spoken out. In China, you have hundreds of Protestant pastors and house church leaders being imprisoned and persecuted. The church in Sudan has suffered persecution. In southern Sudan, 2.1 million people have died, mainly Christians, but also some Muslims and some animists. I had one woman tell me the West seems more interested in whales than in us. Or perhaps the statement might be, the West is more interested in the iPhone X than us. The question would be, would that describe us? That the interest and the concern about those who suffer overseas is eclipsed by Black Friday, eclipsed by football, eclipsed by Thanksgiving, eclipsed by having fun. It was so good last Friday to pray and to remember during our fellowship that there are so many who name the name of Christ and weakly hide because of persecution. The scriptures tell us, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are in the body. One who places Christ as preeminent and supreme in their life is one who loves other believers, one who desires to show hospitality, one who remembers the persecuted, and fourthly, protects marriages. Protects marriages. Verse 4. Marriage is to be held in high honor, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Marriage is established by God as the union of one man and one woman. Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Marriage was honored by Jesus who performed his first miracle 
the changing water into wine and at the wedding banquet of Cana. It is the scriptures that show the relationship of Christ and his church are like that of one to his bride. The scriptures tell us that fornicators, those who have sexual relations outside of marriage, those who are adulterers are those who are sexually unfaithful with someone other than their spouse. And it doesn't have to be physical as well as Jesus reminds us in Matthew 5.28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. And in our culture, in our society, marriage is not held in high honor. As you already know, today there are websites that promote fornication, that promote adultery. According to an article by Jeremy Kaplan back in 2009 in Time magazine entitled two point, Adultery 2.0, that one site in the June of 2009, just one month, 679,000 men and women used the site to have an affair. And since 2008, just a year before that, site membership doubled to 4 million people on this site that promotes adultery. It sees its largest traffic after Father's Day when men feel most unappreciated, after Valentine's Day when women feel most unappreciated, And according to the personal profiles of people who use the site, 92% of the males are are married, and 60% of the females are, apparently, according to the article. One slight slogan I've read is, life is short, have an affair. Not only are these sites those that promote unfaithfulness, but in a confused world that does not understand that God has established marriage as between one man and one woman, extramarital affairs are sometimes even recommended and sometimes considered acceptable. Wall Street Journal reporter examined how different cultures approach extramarital affairs. In Russia, for example, therapists sometimes recommend extramarital affairs as a path to happiness. Or in Japan, if a man pays for sex, it usually isn't considered infidelity. But the Bible is not, is not unclear. It is very clear that it is sin. The Bible says that God will bring judgment upon fornicators and adulterers, that the marriage bed is to be kept pure, that marriages are to be protected. There's a song titled Guard Your Heart that spells out what we are to do very clearly. The lyrics read, Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. What appears to be a harmless glance can turn to romance, and homes are divided. Feelings that should never have been awakened within, tearing the heart in two. Listen, I beg of you, guard your heart, guard your heart. Don't trade it for treasure, don't give it away. Guard your heart, guard your heart. As a payment for pleasure, it is a high price to pay. 
For a soul that remains sincere and a conscience clear, guard your heart. The human heart is easily swayed and often betrayed at the hand of emotion. You dare not leave the outcome to chance. You must choose in advance or live with the agony. Such needless tragedy. Guard your heart. One who places Christ first is one who loves Christians, shows hospitality, remembers the persecuted, and protects marriages. And lastly, it is characterized, to be characterized by one who is content and trusts God. Content and trusts God. Verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Contentment is so very difficult in an age in which we are just drowned in advertisements, in which social media makes you feel like somebody else is having a better time, that they are having a good time, relaxing, eating, traveling, as we look at all of the fun things they are doing. Ads that make you feel like you need something that you've never realized you've needed before. How do you get all of these things? And the world has an answer. You just need more money. Financial institutions will tell you that you need X amount if you want to retire. Unless your financial advisor's name is Doug, who says it's cheaper to die in the Philippines. <laughs> Christ says, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Jesus warned, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And there are so many examples in the scriptures that talk about and give us an example of what happens to one who loves money. One commentator lists a number of them. Achan, who loved money and cost Israel a defeat at Ai when he took some of the spoils. After Naaman was cleansed of leprosy, following Elijah, who healed Naaman, Naaman had told, I mean, Elijah had told him, go seven times in the Jordan, and afterwards he wanted to give him money, but he refused. But Elijah's servant Gehazi, Gehazi went back and later told Naaman, hey, hey, you know what, I'll take something anyways. And he ended up being cursed with the leprosy that Naaman had. Judas was greedy and sold out our Savior for 30 pieces of silver. Ananias and Sapphira, who was paid for their greed and their deceit as they had said, well, this is all the proceeds from the money. We want to give it to the church when it was not. Greed is not a trifling small sin before God. Greed is not. It has resulted in the death of people, as we see in the Scriptures, and it has kept many people. Money has kept many people from that pathway to the kingdom as they have fixed their eyes on earthly riches. The question that we have then is, are we content? Are we content with what we have? Or are we discontent? Always wanting more. Always wanting to make more, keep more. We lack generosity towards others and towards the Lord. That's why we have projects like Operation Christmas Child or other other opportunities to give, like hurricane relief or even uh, supporting missionaries or whatever it is, because it's for all of us, not just for children. Because every time we give, we 
give some of our selfishness away, don't we? How can we be content? The Scriptures tell us by trusting God, trusting God. He Himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. God will never forsake us. We can trust God to provide. We can trust God with the future. We can trust God that God has our best interest in mind no matter what has happened. When some tragedy or discouraging circumstances happen, God will provide. He wants what is best for us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we do not need to be afraid. Money will come and go, but God will always be there. Do these things characterize us, love for other believers, showing hospitality to strangers, remembering those who suffer for naming the name of Christ, protecting marriages and being content and trusting God? I sure hope they do, because they will tell us how much we value placing Christ first in our lives. Let's pray. God in heaven, we give you thanks for this very practical passage Father, I pray that you would cause us to turn our hearts to embrace you. For so often, Lord, we are so easily tempted to love the things of the world. We pray, God, may we set our eyes on things above and pursue that which lasts for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.